Uh, This week, I read an article about singleness, about the topic of singleness online, and below this article was this comment that was posted by a reader named Stanley. Listen to what Stanley wrote. He said, I despise the single life. I am sure God is biased in in favor of married people because single people miss out. I don't want to be by myself, and because I am condemned to singleness, I don't even want to exist. The only woman who is really friendly with me is one who waits for me at the same bus stop. She also is in a relationship with someone else. She's very kind. Every other woman claims they already have a significant other or engages in trivial conversation about television, which I dislike. Why does God force some people to miss out on life? Obviously, Stanley is struggling. He's struggling in a number of ways. Uh, Chief among his problems is he's angry. He's angry at God. He's angry at women. He appears to be lonely and he appears to be somewhat hopeless. He's struggling, and though I think his claims or his words are often quite exaggerated, I believe that his struggles are perfectly normal. Last week we started thinking together about the issue of singleness. I suggested on the basis of 1 Corinthians 7 that singleness offers you a unique opportunity to glorify God by modeling for the church undivided devotion to Jesus Christ. This is not an easy calling. It is certainly not something that we throw around as if it's easier than uh, hard things like marriage or that it's you know just the best you can expect in this life. We don't throw it around like that, but if you're a a single adult, you cannot bypass what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 about undivided devotion. I wonder if you left, though, last Sunday, uh, or have considered some of this more, and thought to yourself, I get it, I, I understand the promise of being single, but the truth of the matter is, I just really want to get married, I I think about it, I hope for it, I just want to be married. Or, perhaps to be more blunt, I just want to have sex with somebody in a relationship, a committed, lifelong relationship. Doesn't the Bible say it's better to marry than to burn with passion? What do I do with these desires? This semester I'm teaching a course at Lancaster Bible College, and one of the things that we're going to be talking about is eschatology, or the end times. I guarantee you that one great fear of every Christian college student or young adult is that Jesus will come back and the world will end before they get married and can have happy, guilt-free sex. Uh, It's not wrong to want to be married. Marriage is a good thing. Sex is one of God's good gifts. It's normal, it's natural, it's even spiritual to want to get married and enjoy physical intimacy. One report I read said that 86% of single adults want to get married, uh, and 95% of people will get married someday. (laughs) I wonder about the 9% who are in between that, who don't want to get married but who will someday. I worry about them, but that's for another time. It's, It's not wrong to want to get married. 
Problems arise, though, when that desire to get married becomes so central to you that it dominates your life. When a good desire becomes an ultimate desire, the result is disastrous. The problem is not what you want. The problem is that you want it too much. It becomes an inordinate ruling cravings. Words that John Calvin used to describe desires that are that strong. So, uh, a good and healthy and balanced desires and God's will have to go together. His good pleasure for your life and your longing for your life to be different than it is, they have to go together somehow. How do they go together? They come together in a grace that the Bible calls contentment. I want you to take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn with me to the book of Psalms, Psalm 131. Psalm 131 is where I'm going to direct your attention this morning. Psalm 131 is one of two sections in the Bible devoted to the issue of contentment. The other one is in Philippians 4, where we're going to turn in a few minutes I want to look at Psalm 131 with you together this morning, and I want you to see three things in this psalm. First, what produces discontentment? We're going to look at what produces discontentment. Secondly, I want to look with you at what contentment looks like. I want you to see in this text the word picture that David uses to describe what contentment looks like. And third, how do you learn contentment? How you learn contentment is uh, where I want to uh, finish this morning. Uh, Before we go any further, though, let's read Psalm 131. As your eyes are open on the text here, you'll notice uh, right above or next to Psalm 131 is Psalm 130. That numbering system is ingenious. Uh, Psalm 130 is the basis for the song that we sang this morning, Out of the Depths Alone I Cry for You. You'll notice... um, Verse 5 of Psalm 130, uh, actually verse 6, My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. That's where that line, that, that lyric comes from, this psalm. But our focus today is Psalm 131, so we'll look at the next three verses. Listen to what God's Word says. My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. The psalm is short. Let's read it again, shall we? My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. Let's consider together first what produces discontentment. That's what verse 1 is about. Where does discontentment come from? Notice in verse 4 there are four phrases that describe what David's life is not like. Did you you see that? Four things that would spoil his life. 
maybe there are things that, that used to characterize him. That is, he used to be proud, he used to have haughty eyes, um, but he doesn't anymore. Or maybe he is describing things that he thinks or he's observed in other people that will ruin contentment. Perhaps that's what's, what's going on here. David's, uh, David Paulison said that the problem that David, uh, the author, is describing here is a, he has a noisy soul. You are discontent because your life, your soul, is too noisy. And the chief message of all that noise is self-will. What produces discontentment in your life is your desire to run your life, your desire to be God. A noisy soul is a soul with all kinds of messages and announcements telling you how things ought to be different, how your life should be better. And all of that noise is an expression of pride, haughtiness, and controlling tendencies, all described in verse 1. So what produces discontentment? David says here, this noise, this constant thrum of expectation and demand and hope that is the soundtrack of your life. I want to look at these four things in this verse in specific and then I want to describe some of the particular noise that your soul might be producing Uh, First, David says, my heart is not proud. Uh, Pride is is the basic attitude that wants to dethrone God. It's, It's the original sin. I know what is best and God is holding out on me. I can determine for my life, I have the skills, I have the knowledge and I have the ability to determine what is best for me and I should be allowed to. A proud soul. Second, David says, my eyes are not haughty. He's describing ambition here. A pride that looks down on other people. Haughty eyes. You know, self-will works in two different directions. In order to, to, for you to build yourself up in pride, you have to maximize yourself and you have to tear other people down. This is the two sides of having a proud heart. Self-exaltation and other degradation. Tearing other people down. Actually, these first two lines are both about self-exaltation and the next two lines are about self-deification. I do not concern myself with great matters. Great matters in the Bible describes things that only God can do. God does great things. God is great. Uh, Something similar with the concept of things too wonderful for me. Wonderful things refer to God's knowledge. Great things refer to God's deeds. Wonderful things refer to God's knowledge. What David is saying is that he does not attempt to manipulate and control the circumstances of his life. He does not try to exercise control in his life that only God can do. I am not lifting myself up above others and I am not trying to control my life in a way that only God can do. David says, I've, tried, I've stopped trying to set myself above God and I don't try to wrest control of the universe from God. Discontentment comes when proud, haughty, controlling thoughts invade and dominate your life. 
And those types of, of thoughts are noisy and disruptive. Let me give you some examples of some noisy thoughts that might produce discontentment in your life. One of them might be, God is withholding marriage from me. God is is withholding, He's keeping me back. Kind of like Stanley, God has not chosen me for the good life. This is a sort of thought that leads to anger at God. And perhaps it's an especially sweet temptation for those who are divorced or those who are widowed. People who were married but are not married anymore. God has taken something from me. He is holding out on me. Here's another noisy thought. There's something wrong with me and once I fix it, then I will be able to get married. It's a pretty common thought. Have you ever thought that about yourself? There's something wrong with me. Why don't girls ever want to go out with me? Or why don't guys ever call me? There must be something wrong with me. And behind that thought is this idea that if I can identify what's wrong with me, then I can change it and I can be in charge and I can determine what happens to me. Pamela Benton Brown said that uh, she had some well-meaning friends who offered her some terrible advice. (laughs) Here's some things that her friend said to her. As soon as you're satisfied with God alone, He'll bring someone special into your life. Or, as soon as you are content as a single adult, then God will give you a husband. Or, before you can marry someone wonderful, the Lord has to make you someone wonderful. As if marriage were a reward for achieving some level of sanctification. I say those things to you because some of you married folk have said those things to single people. Uh, Here's another noisy thought that maybe has roots in this verse. It is not fair that she is married and I am not. I deserve it a lot more than she does. Or, um, if I weren't a Christian, I could be partying as much as he is and getting all the pleasure I want, but I am saddled with this Christian conscience that bothers me and it's not fair. I'm not, uh, here's another noisy thought. Someone might say, I don't feel completely like a woman unless I'm married. Or I don't feel completely like a man unless I'm married. Or another one, it's too late for me. I'm doomed, doomed, cursed with this life of singleness. What these noisy thoughts have in common is the desire to define life for yourself. I know what is best. I know what is best for myself and what, in, what is best for me is a relationship with someone else right now. And God is not treating me to His best by not giving me someone. I'm not saying that if you want to get married that these things are all true of you, that these thoughts are the soundtrack of your life, but I want to warn you when you're tempted toward discontentment, your desire for a good thing has taken over and it is producing this sort of noise in your life. Now, just as an aside, if you're married, you know that what I'm saying has implications well beyond singleness. Everyone here in this room has a list of if-onlys. Some of them describe very good things. Uh, you say, if I only had this, then I would be happy. Some of them are great desires. If I only had children, then I would be happy. Or, if only my kids would follow Christ, then I would be happy. 
or if only I had a better job, or if only I could lose weight, or if only I had a bigger house, uh, then I would be content. If I could get the priorities that I have, the things that I think are important for a good life, then I would be happy. What you can see in in this line of thinking is, is that the way we most often think about contentment is that contentment equals comfort. We think that. I asked a friend of mine this week, someone who's not a believer, I said to him, I'm talking about contentment on Sunday at our church. I said, are you content? He said, sure, I'm content. I said, how do you know you're content? He said, I'm content because I have everything that I want. Everything that I have that makes me happy is what I need. Uh, I've got everything I need, and it's, it, that's why I'm content. So I guess the question that you have to ask yourself is, what is the good life for you, and how is that fantasy life affecting your vision of God, or how you see yourself in this world? The problem with that comfort and contentment equation, the, the problem with the idea that contentment equals comfort, is that, that neither David nor Paul, uh, the contentment champions in the Bible, neither of them had an easy life. Neither of them had a comfortable life. If your life needs to be trouble-free in order for you to be content, you'll never be content. What produces discontentment? Uh, Noisy self-will, verse 1. Now, verse 2 shows us what contentment looks like. It's a a perfect word picture for for contentment. Look at verse 2 again. I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. John Goldengay wrote a fine commentary in the book of Psalms. He said that the image that David is describing here is either a child that doesn't nurse anymore, is old enough not to nurse anymore, or a child who has just finished nursing and is comfortable on his mother's lap. The central image of a weaned child, you know what what David is trying to communicate is the lack of demand. It's a quiet soul. It's a, an undemanding soul. Uh, David here is speaking of something that you may have observed in your own children or in uh, children that you have uh, been around. We've had three babies in our house, and I know what a hungry baby looks like. More important, I know what a hungry baby sounds like. There is nothing more demanding, more shrill, more unsatisfied than a hungry baby. When a baby is hungry, there is nothing you can do to hold it off or distract it. You cannot get that baby to food fast enough. I don't remember exactly which child it was, but um, Kathy left me home once with a baby who uh, woke up hungry earlier than we expected. She thought that she had a little bit more time. Kathy was out of the house for all of 12 minutes, and when she got back, I handed her this screaming infant, and I said, never leave me alone with a baby like that again. A hungry baby's cry is pitched perfectly to draw blood from adult human ear. And when that baby is hungry, they will suck on anything that is near their mouth, shards of glass, splintered wood, it doesn't matter. They want some food. 
If you went to snow camp, maybe you met uh, Joshua Aram. I remember when Josh was a little baby, and uh, one summer I was at camp, and, and uh, he would be sitting in his stroller, and his mother would, would get out his bottle and get it ready. If, if he saw the bottle, he would start dancing around in his stroller with arms reaching out. Oh, give me, bring me, bring me, bring me. Tears would roll down the side of his face because he wanted that bottle so much. In contrast to that, David is describing a weaned or a satisfied baby. One that's full. It's a great time to hold a baby, provided that it has been burped. Um, (laughs) What other stage in life can you eat so much food that some of it actually comes out and it's socially acceptable? I've been to Shady Maple Smorgasbord and seen people carry down on stretchers. They are never cute. But a baby that spits up is still somewhat cute, right? I mean, a a satisfied baby is calm. It's at peace. It's restful. That's when you want to hold a baby. It's sweet. There's this serenity about it, this absence of demand. All my needs have been met, and I'm in a safe, happy, warm place. Does that describe your life? You have that sense of calm about whether or not you're going to ever get married? Um, Or are you driven to the point where you think about every single person of the opposite sex you meet and whether or not they'll be a potential spouse? Now, how do you get from verse 1 to verse 2? What's the connection between the two? How do you learn contentment? You don't move from verse 1 to verse 2 by beating back your inordinate desire to get married with denial or self-will. By yelling at yourself, oh, just stop it, just stop it. uh, As if you could squeeze the desire to get married from your heart. That's not how you get from verse 1 to verse 2. You don't get there in the backwash of a bad relationship so that you're content as long as you don't have to marry the guy you just broke up with. That's not how you get to verse 2. You don't get to verse 2 by trying to convince yourself that marriage is a bad thing or something you don't really want or that it's less than spiritual. What silences that noise, the only thing capable of of muffling the roar of self-will is a person. That's why verse 3 is written the way it is. Look at verse 3. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. O Christian, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. What ties together verse 1, this demand, and verse 2, this calm, is verse 3, the intervention, the the reality of the Lord. Um, So, how do you move from verse 1 to verse 2? Put your hope in the Lord. Or I could expand it in a little bit uh, the way we're going to look about it in Philippians 4. Put your hope in the Lord in a way that goes above and beyond your circumstances. In fact, uh, let's flip over to Philippians 4 right now if we can. Turn with me over to the, the book of Philippians chapter 4. And I want to spend the last few minutes that we have in this great contentment passage in the Bible in Philippians chapter 4. 
Uh, You probably already know this, but Philippians is an extended thank you note. Paul wrote this letter to the church in Philippi to thank them for a financial gift that he had sent. And in chapter 4, he rejoices in their gift in an unusual way. Some people said Paul's an ingrate here. He's not. He is trying to thank them for their gift, but he wants to do it in a way that communicates to them that it's their relationship that is most important to him. Uh, and, And he wants to communicate gratitude to them in such a way that he's not asking for another gift. Have you ever had people do that? They'll thank you for something in a way that implies they need something else. Huh. Have you ever sent a check to a nonprofit organization and you receive their letter with uh, the letter of thanks or the receipt and what's inside the envelope? Another envelope. So you can send more money. Paul's trying to avoid that here in Philippians chapter 4. So this is what he writes. Look at verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Verse 11, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Notice here that Paul says that he learned contentment. We're talking about how you learn contentment. How you move from the demanding, controlling verse 1 of Psalm 131 to the serene verse 2 of Psalm 131. It's a learned thing. It's not easy. It demands continual repentance. Uh, Martin Luther said this. He said, Next to faith, this is the highest art to be content with the calling in which God has placed you. I have not learned it yet. I find that immensely encouraging. Uh, verse 11, Paul mentions circumstances. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Verse 12, he clarifies what those circumstances are. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every, any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Uh, Some of you don't really know if you're a content person because you haven't experienced enough ups and downs in life to know whether you're really a content person. Paul has. He's been uh, had plenty and he's been in want. Sometimes it takes more grace to be content with plenty than it does to be content with want. He's been full, he's been hungry. In all those circumstances, he's learned to be content. Maybe I can paraphrase Paul here for a minute. I have learned the secret of being content on Friday night when I have a date and on Friday night when I'm home alone. I've learned the secret of being content when my phone rings and when it doesn't. When I'm in a full house of friends and potential dates and when I'm home alone. I have learned the secret of being content. What's the secret, Paul? What's the mystery here? Verse 13. I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. Through him might be better translated in him. Again, what silences the self-will noise is a person. It's being in Christ, the one who strengthens me. How, How did Paul learn contentment? Paul learned contentment by recognizing that there is a reality, namely a person, who is above and preeminent over all circumstances. Having Him, knowing Him, being known by Him is more important than whether I am hungry or fed or have plenty or want, have a date on Saturday night or not. 
knowing Him is preeminent over all of those circumstances. This is not easy, is it? It demands almost constant repentance. If you're going to pursue contentment like this, it's going to demand that you come to God frequently and you confess, God, forgive me for thinking that what I want at this moment is more important than you are. Forgive me for thinking that being married, that having a girlfriend, that experiencing sexual pleasure is more important, is more valuable than you are. That's what I'm thinking right now and it's driving me to despair. Forgive me for loving those things more than I love, more than I value knowing you. Contentment does not mean that desire is gone. It doesn't mean that life is easy. It doesn't mean that you're complacent about life. You can find that in the book of Philippians. Paul had unmet desires in chapter 1. He says, I want to go home to heaven. I want to be with Jesus. That's really what I long to do. He had this desire. But the desire was placed under the value of knowing Jesus Christ. Contentment doesn't mean your life is easy. Paul wrote this in prison. He's not experiencing an easy life. It doesn't mean you're complacent, that you're untouched by things in life. Paul had great desires in chapter 3. I'm pressing on, I'm fighting, I'm struggling. That's not what contentment is about. Contentment is about recognizing that over all of your desires reigns Christ preeminent supreme. And knowing Him is more valuable than anything else that you want. Good things, bad things, ugly things, beautiful things, God-given things. I think the greatest argument for this sort of hope is found in a verse that we refer to a lot in our church. It's a verse that you should think about frequently. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things. The argument of this verse is that God is worthy of your trust. He's worthy to be pursued above all things because He has already met your greatest need and thus you can trust Him with your many desires and many hopes. C.J. Mahaney wrote this, Your greatest need is not a spouse. Your greatest need is to be delivered from the wrath of God. What he's talking about is the fact that we human beings are estranged from God. Uh, We're separated from Him. We spoke about this, my, my desire to define my life. I want to define my life for myself. And you know what that means? In order for me to define my life by myself, I must dethrone God. God, you have no right to rule over my life. And that rebellion is justly punishable by the wrath of God. I am estranged from Him naturally. Cut off. My discontent is a direct challenge to God's right to rule the universe and He will not tolerate rebellion in His creation. My discontent is evidence of the fact that I want to be God and that I deserve His just punishment and yet in love, God gave us His Son. He did not spare His Son. He sent His Son to earth, Jesus Christ, and He lived a perfect life. When He died on the cross, He bore in His body all of the sins that I had committed. God poured out His wrath on Jesus Christ for my sins. He died the death that I deserved to die. And now God offers life and forgiveness and reconciliation 
through to anyone who will believe, who will trust in what Christ did on the cross. Again, C.J. Mahaney writes this, Your greatest need is not a spouse. Your greatest need is to be delivered from the wrath of God. And that has already been accomplished for you through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So why doubt that God will provide a much, much lesser need? Trust His sovereignty. Trust His wisdom. Trust His love, he says. If you want to get married... That's a fine desire. Good for you. We're a church that is pro-marriage, right? How embarrassing that in the middle of a series on singleness, our church bulletin has an announcement about four couples getting married. Something's wrong here, isn't it? In a few weeks, we're going to talk about, about pursuing marriage in a way that glorifies God. It's okay to pursue marriage. It's okay to want to get married, but not at the cost of your greater pursuit of Christ himself. Let's pray, shall we? Father, what we're talking about is, is difficult. Like most things in the Bible, it's easier to describe, it's easier to preach than it is to do. My heart, Father, is a factory of idols and I make all kinds of things that I want. I want to define my life. And my circumstances make me doubt your goodness, doubt your wisdom, doubt your kindness. Doubtless, I I stand making that confession in front of a room full of people who could agree with me. Father, this image of a weaned child is, is challenging to me. I, I pray for the, the men and women here who are in, my, in, in the congregation who are listening this morning. Would you do a, a miraculous work in us? We are in need of the transformation of our affections so that we would love you beyond our own comfort, so that we would value knowing Christ beyond our own desires. It's hard. Grant unto us the grace of continual repentance that we might find ourselves yearning to know Christ better, to know Him and the surpassing power of His resurrection than than to meet our own fulfillments, our own fantasy life. Change us. You're the God who takes out the heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. You're the God who sprinkles us with uh, living water. You're the Savior who raised that boy who was uh, being carried in Nain to his tomb. You raised him for his mother. Would you transform us? Do it as a reflection of your great glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.